way God has created us, there's fundamentally three relationships that we get as humans, we get to engage with. We get to engage with the relationship with God, uh, we get to engage with relationships with other people, and we get to engage with relationships with the rest of creation. God really calls for humility between our relationship, you know, in our relationship with Him, and certainly between people, you know, um, and I feel like those two relationships lead us to this relationship of humility with the, with the rest of creation as well. I, I think there's so much gold in that. Welcome to the Renew Our World podcast. Renew Our World is a global movement of Christians who believe that since we are truly image bearers of God, we should act like it, living out love for one another in actions and in truth. Since we are image bearers of God, we won't stand by while our neighbours are trapped in poverty and we won't stay idle as creation is left untended and inequality is left to fester. In this podcast, we're going to go on a journey together of discovering a theology of creation care. We'll be discussing the latest in climate news, chatting with industry leaders, theologians and practitioners and hearing from some of our incredible partners who are working on the ground. Join us this season as we learn about creation care and what we can do in our own lives to play part in a much bigger restorative story. Today on the Renew Our World podcast, I am joined by Paul and Anna from Cassinia. Thank you so much for joining me today, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, no problem. So I thought we might just get straight into it and I would love it if you guys could tell me a little bit about yourselves and what you're currently working on. So... um my name's Paul Detman. Um, I'm the founder of Cassinia. Um, founded this little company, it's hard to believe, but about 20 years ago, but didn't really do anything with it until about 15 years ago. It was an idea. So for anyone out there who's got a good idea that they're persisting with and they feel like it's not going to go anywhere, but they should keep going. We've been going five years before we actually even opened a bank account. Um, but since then we've done about a hundred, um, either biodiversity protection or revegetation restoration projects in Australia. And now we're a team of 12 people and, um, we're actually trust for nature who do sort of in perpetuity protection in Victoria. Uh, we're actually their largest covenanting partner and, um, we're doing some really interesting projects. So in uh, South Australia and New South Wales, and we've done a little bit in Tasmania as well. So our focus is really um, protection of good quality existing remnant vegetation uh, for its intrinsic biodiversity worth and and restoration of degraded lands and restoration of corridors to increase the connectivity of native vegetation, particularly in Victoria, but we're looking more around Australia as well. And actually we might even in a project or two internationally we've done a little bit of work in africa in the past and we'd like to do a bit more of that work as well so that's a snapshot of what we do that's awesome and anna can you tell me a little bit about your role and how you're involved hmm yep um i've been the operations manager for the last couple years and mostly that means i manage the projects um of like biodiversity conservation on properties. So we own about, own about 30 properties across Victoria, one in New South Wales, two in New South Wales now, and one in South Australia. And the bulk of our work has been buying up the bits of land that are really high quality that are left. So the beautiful forest blocks, um, you know, or beautiful grasslands that are really high quality remnant vegetation with 
amazing biodiversity of flowers or birds or bugs or small mammals and then we protect those. Um, so my job has been making sure that we just manage those and you know keep the ecosystems functioning um, really well and often that means taking care of the problems. Um, so whether that's weeds or pest animals or making sure the fences are up so sheep can't from the sheep from next door can't get in and things like that. But we also do quite a number of revegetation projects where we buy up degraded land and then plant heaps and heaps of trees and fix the erosion and, you know, um, restore the biodiversity. So we protect biodiversity and we restore biodiversity. That's really exciting. Um, now, I know that you guys do a bit with co- like conservation covenants. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that process is and why it's important? Yeah, definitely. Um, like Paul said, we're Trust for Nature's biggest covenanter, which mm. just means every block of land we buy, um, we're not just managing it, we've actually changed the legal status of it so that it's protected forever. Um, so uh, often we'll resell the blocks that we've bought to people who are also excited about conservation or just want to you know, protect a bit of their country as well or just want a tree change, a bit of bush to escape to. And when they buy that land, the covenant stays. So part of their purchase of the land, they get to live there, but they also become the stewards of that land and they look after it. And those covenants just mean, you know, there's rules about clearing or grazing or, you know, even riding your motorbikes. Like there's all these just restrictions that you can't do on that land um, forever. Like it has to basically stay like a private national park. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, Paul, you've done a lot of really great work turning conservation into a business. Can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of business and why you've chosen to turn, I guess, this whole concept into a business in the first place? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a good question. There's probably a little bit of um, within the within the space um, there'd be a, a bit of angst from some people about saying monetizing nature is like inherently evil um you know and having a business around conservation is is wrong so um it's just interesting the way we think about what we do when we say we're, we're an environmental business um i did a master's degree in actually looking at attitudes and perceptions of private land remnant vegetation um from landholders, you know, and, and how they perceive it, how they value it, how they manage it. And that was back in the late 90s. Um, and I sort of came out of that going, I think there's a lot of work being done by governments and NGOs. So there's, there's government money and there's philanthropic money that's being poured into this space. But um, both, those spa- both those sectors, the government and, and philanthropy, um, have some limitations that business doesn't have. So it'd be really good not to undermine or not to take away from any of the good work that's being done, but it'd be good to have a, a business um, angle on this as well because the problem with government is election cycles come and go and priorities change and, and government gets interested in stuff and then it gets interested in other stuff. And, and philanthropy also you know, rides the economic cycles up and down, how much money can can people afford to give. So there's, both, there's limitations there. And I felt like if there was a way to engage the business community into what um, what they would like the natural environment to look like, and then we could um, capture their interest and capture you know their commitment to to improve Australia's environment 
and protect biodiversity, restore linkages, then we'd have a third third angle to, to bring to the whole conservation space and it would be really valuable. So that's sort of where we started. Um, you know, it's not to take away, it's not to say that we should be the only way that conservation's managed, but it is a, a really valuable third third string to the bow. Um, and it's been really successful, you know, in a lot of ways. It's been a lot different to what we thought it was going to be when we first started. Um, we certainly had a, the first uh, cast of the of the vision and how we'd implement this, you know, it's, it's evolved a lot over the last 15 years. Um, but it, I think it's got a really important place. And I think, um, yeah, I think together with government and, and NGOs, we work really closely with a whole bunch of NGOs. We work closely with government in a whole bunch of spaces. Um, but having private business in, this, in that space as well really, really adds value. Yeah, that's really cool. Can you tell us some of the highlights from your career so far? <laughs> uh, there's been lots of highlights. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I remember reading once somebody said, if if, uh, if I heard about my job and somebody was doing my job, I'd be so envious um, and that's the job I'd want unless I was actually doing yeah. it and then you realise that the challenges as well, you don't sort of appreciate, um, you know, the, some of the stresses when you're not, when you're not, when you're looking from the outside, but I really love my job. And so, look, some of the highlights, um, I mean, it's a, it's both a social and an environmental business probably that we run. And, and so some of the highlights for us are connecting people with nature and, and becoming part of, um, part of communities, be they, you know, like-minded, like the community we are with Trust for Nature or say Bush Heritage who are, who are an NGO, um, working together with them towards shared goals. That's a real highlight. Um, and because, like Anna said, we um, we don't hold on to our properties forever. We, we, we covenant them and then we, we effectively build a community of um, of like-minded people who, who, who purchase them and then go on to manage them themselves. And being part of those communities and fostering and precipitating, encouraging those communities is really a beautiful thing. It's a real highlight too. That's the social side. Um, but the other real highlight is is discovering stuff that might have been lost um, and protecting it. And um, we've had some real, you know, privileges to be part of um, a, a whole bunch of stories to do with nature that, um, you know, we, we, we've got the largest private um, um, private, um, what's the word? Private population um, of a species that was considered extinct. It, it was last seen in 1946. It was rediscovered in the early 2000s, and then we, we were the second private property on which it was discovered. And it's a little orchid, um, and we got the largest private population of that orchid, and you know one of the last remaining populations in the world of that of that orchid. So to be part of something like that, where you're engaged in in you know in a relationship with nature that just uncovers so many beautiful um, facets to that relationship like that um, is amazing mm. and and you know I, I feel as as a Christian as a person of faith as a person who sees a narrative bigger than just ourselves in and and a sort of a sterile nature. Um, 
I feel the nourishing of those relationships to be something that God really designed when he designed nature. That's how it feels to me anyway, that you can step into this thing that is beautiful and um, nourishing and just just an absolute delight. And part of the way we were created to be is to delight in that. So that's that's a real highlight. Yeah, that's really cool. Anna, what about for you? Have there been any moments that you've seen God at work in the work that you guys have been doing? Yeah, definitely. I was um, thinking before just when Paul was talking about, you know, the role of a business as well. As, um, Richard Foster talks about um, he draws these parallels between uh, slavery and owning land. So, like, you know, people used to own slaves and that was wrong because you can't put an economic value in a human life like that or own them like that. Yeah. And he would say it's the same with land. Actually, we don't have a right to own land. Um, you know, and there are a whole bunch of people involved in kind of abolishing that slave trade and they're still working in that. Um, but, you know, back in the day in America, there were just these Quakers who would quietly, like, work within the system, even though they knew the system was wrong, to buy slaves and set them free and give them a chance at life. And sometimes it feels like that's exactly what we're doing in the environmental space. We're buying up these bits of land that could be cleared otherwise and then, you know, protecting them and setting them free, allowing them to be the landscape they were created to be. And I just think, um, you know, there's real opportunity there. And we're not the ones out, you know, protesting or picketing. And there's a space for that. There's a need for that. Like the system is flawed and it needs to be changed. And we're not working to change the system. We're working within the system to just set a few bits of land free so that they have a chance to continue because they're the bits that, you know, God's made this landscape and he's made it beautiful and he's created it with purpose and diversity um, and we get this opportunity to kind of protect it and that's, you know, a way to worship him and a way to acknowledge that he as a creator has designed this stuff to be good and then we're going to work towards stewarding it by protecting it um, yeah, so I think for me, you know, working in this space is an act of worship um, about mm. acknowledging who God is and acknowledging that the world he's made is beautiful and in need of protection. Um, yeah, so that's a large part of it for me. But it's even just, you know, the joy of getting to be human. <laughs> like, you know, uh, as humans we get to participate in creation in a way that no other kind of creature does. We've got this, um, you know, where what is it, a little lower than the angels, like we are the sons of God, the children of God. And so we get to protect it, you know, like who else gets that opportunity to kind of participate in our Christ-likeness in that way of getting to, you know, um, yeah, protect what God has made. Yeah. That, that was a very, very beautiful answer, so I really love that. Um, I'm going to throw a spanner at you both because I haven't put this question in my pre-prepared questions. Um, as people like myself who live in the suburbs, who work a standard nine-to-five job, what are some ways that we can engage in environment and engage in, I guess, our, our surrounds in, a, in an impactful way? Is there, any, is there anything that we can do in our day-to-day lives to contribute to this work? Yeah, definitely. I think um, uh, as Christians, we have to get to know God and we have to get to know the world he's made, both you know, in terms of the bush and the people he's made, because you can't love something if you don't know it. So if you don't actually know God, 
why would you love the stuff he's made? And if you don't know the bush, how do you know how to, you know, love and protect the bush? Why is it worth protecting, you know? Like it's the people, you know, it's the surfers that care about the ocean. It's the scuba divers that care about the coral reefs. It's the, you know, often the hunters, the hikers, the campers that care about, you know, the forests and the bush and the grasslands. So you got to get out there and you got to get to know it. Um, And then, you know, there's a million ways then that flow on from that. And it's the stuff I think God's given each of us a conscience as well. So the stuff that grips some people more than others, like, some people get really passionate about sustainability and that's a really beautiful thing, you know, and whether that's retrofitting their homes to make it more sustainable or just like working really hard to recycle your plastic or getting your church to use, you know, mugs and washing them up rather than just using disposable cups. You know, there's little things, but then there's big things as well, you know, where you change your lifestyle or you invest your money into protecting land rather than, you know, just living your best life now and buying a big house like maybe... You buy a smaller house, but then you buy a bush block that you can, you know, like it's hard to give someone, I guess, a prescriptive way of caring. But I think once you care, once you know God, once you know his world, you'll work out ways to care. Like there's no to-do list, but the to-do list can be as big or as small as you want it to be, I think. I don't want to be pretentious by saying this, but it put it does put a little bit of context in that um, – I met this um, lady who lives next door to one of our properties. He's actually a lecturer in environmental philosophy. And um, I ended up doing an interview with one of her PhD students um, around um, environmental philosophy and why we do what we do. And um, so he asked me, what's your, he asked, he was Chinese actually. And he asked me, what's your spiritual motivation for your work? Which was, I'm sure translated probably meant to be something different but um it was a great question and it started me on a long answer um but um i really feel like there's like three relationships i feel like god created so as christians we've got a we've got a, a perspective on both people and god and the rest of creation that sort of links fits everything together and i feel like the way God has created us, there's fundamentally three relationships that we get as humans, we get to engage with. We get to engage with the relationship with God. Uh, we get to re- engage with relationships with other people. And we get to engage with relationships with the rest of creation. And um, and my feeling is that, like, you know, there's a real um, God really calls for humility between our relationship, you know, in our relationship with him. Humility is a really critical part of of the man god relationship Uh, and and certainly between people you know jesus talked about if you want to be um you know if you want to be my servant you'll you'll be the servant of all people know your disciples by the way you love and and there's a real call to humility towards other people um and i feel like those two relationships lead us to this relationship of humility with with the rest of creation as well and I think there's so much gold in that vein, um, and and I actually started a PhD in environmental philosophy with with this with this um, lady as supervisor, and I didn't finish it because got busy doing stuff instead of thinking about stuff, you know, in terms of this space. But um, I'd love to get back to it one day. But I think that idea of what does what does humility and what would humility look like as the foundation for environmental ethics. Um, I think that's really interesting. And I think as Christians, we've got so much reason 
to care. Um, we've got much more reason than anybody else to care, really, because um, God created the world, and in Genesis it says he created the world, and he said that it was good. Like, he's given his blessing to his creation in a way that um, he hasn't really, he hasn't said that that idea of, you know, whole goodness about about many things, and he says it about the environment that he created. So I think it gives us a perspective and a place to really come to that um, as you know, as people of faith, with a great deal of respect and awe and readiness to um, be part of you know God's beautiful story in caring for creation. So I think that's something that you know, it makes, makes me really um, feel very much alive when I think about, you know, that relationship that God's cast us in. And I think as Christians, we've got more, yeah. more equity in that space than anyone. So anyway, mm. that's my bit. Yeah. So I know that you guys also work a little bit in agriculture. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, we're not just into protecting remnant vegetation. We don't think that it's either conservation or agriculture. Um, we actually do both, and we use the one to serve the other as well. So we've got a few agricultural properties um, where we just run sheep, right? They're just farms, and but we're running the sheep to manage the grasslands, which then in turn helps protect this critically endangered species called a golden sun moth. And so it's not either conservation or agriculture. We're doing both in a way to kind of um, show people that it doesn't have to be just farming or just conservation. Like all of these systems are connected and dynamic and entwined and you can't actually pull one apart because as soon as you pull on the cord, you, you know, you pull another part of the system. It's all sort of interwoven there, and so you can't kind of set these boxes around this is farming and this is conservation, like they're connected. And so we're trying to manage our properties like a connected system, but then other people, you know, can look at that and kind of see a model of how you can do both conservation and agriculture. And um, we've just started developing some new projects in that area as well, which... Paul can probably talk about. Yeah. yeah. Um, just just for clarity, though, on that, not all our properties are both conservation and agriculture. Yeah. Probably 95% of them are purely conservation, like we were talking about before. But we really have been in the last couple of years, or probably the last 12 months, really, just thinking through, like, if most of Australia, the Australian continent is managed for agriculture, how do we, how do we not see like a, a you know a barrier a, a ring fence between the conservation parts and the agricultural parts how do we see agricultural landscapes delivering conservation benefits as well and mm. so we we really see a strong mandate for some areas to be purely managed for conservation no agricultural aspirations at all realized there but in the agricultural landscapes we don't want to give that up 100% to agriculture we say well all land should be providing functionality for conservation and and a range of native species. So how do we do that? So we've 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 come up with a a concept which we're calling natural agriculture, Cassinia natural agriculture, and the sort of digging into it a bit. Um, it's I think the the premise is that landscapes um, should be delivering a range of um, service is probably the wrong word, but there's a, there's a lot of competing motivations for, for land and 
agriculture is only one of them. So holistic land management would include room for agriculture, for sure, but also room for Indigenous aspirations. Like, And this is, you know, maybe flavour of the month this month, um, June 2020, but... But what is, you know, what is, what is the aspirations of traditional owners look like in a landscape? Um, how do we weave that into what the way we do stuff? What is biodiversity? What is the, 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 the aspirations? Maybe that's not the right word, but maybe what is the, what is the, um, the, what right does biodiversity have to claim, um, you know, the management of agricultural land? How do we incorporate that into, into the way we do um, land management and then the rights of animals too um, both native and non-native animals um, what what are, what are, what does animal ethics look like in in land management um, so grappling with those sort of four elements um, where we're sort of where, well we are grappling with those four elements and, and would like to see a future where agricultural lands are managed you know for those four aspects um, I was going to go somewhere else that was interesting. Indigenous partnerships. Yeah, indigenous partnerships would certainly be. It's certainly part of the um, sort of indigenous aspiration piece. Um, uh, I don't know. So when you're when you're talking about um, indigenous aspirations, what's the what's the process? How do you like? What what are the conversations that you're having? How do you go about that? So we've got on our team now. We've got. Um, one a really good friend um, who's indigenous, who's um, from South Australia, Narangeri guy, um, Clyde Rigney. You, he, you probably know him actually. He's had a bit yeah, to do with yeah, you. Do. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's he's part of our team now, very part time, but he's sort of bringing the indigenous partnerships piece. And the first, like, so when I say you know we've been working on this for twelve months, um, where. Um, you know we're in a journey and part of that journey is like how do we how do we set up a protocol how do we set up a, 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 an approach by which that indigenous aspiration piece can be embedded into land management decisions for all our properties and we don't want to you know we don't want to have a, like a five-year consultation process for every property you know like this has got to be something that is replicable is usable by us is usable by other land managers is, is something that becomes sort of just normal business. Um, so part of part of the the role Clyde's um, playing, and part of what we're hoping that we'll, we'll be able to realise with him over the next 12, 18 months is some sort of um, some sort of consolidated uh, wisdom around the way that's best done. And it won't just be Clyde; it'll be a group of Indigenous. Um, people bringing their wisdom to how does how do land managers, how do farmers, how do conservationists bring in indigenous aspiration in a in a sort of a practical, replicable, uh, transparent way um, that uh, respects the you know respects the rights and respects the aspirations of traditional owners in that space, and it's it you know it's it's obviously going to be hard because we've been trying to do this for a long time as people um and we haven't really you know <laughs> haven't really realized what we'd say is is a perfect system there by any means um but we want to with the natural ag piece and with that land management piece we really want to um we want to push in to see if we can we can embed that 
um, Indigenous aspiration piece into, into land management going forward. And a lot of times the Indigenous aspiration piece just looks like getting to know the Indigenous mm. people around us. Like, so, yeah, we've got friends now who are Tungurong, which is kind of like, you know, where our offices based Kyneton areas, like Tungurong land. We know the Jar Jar guys who are around. Like, we know the Naranjeri guys who are around. Like, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, a lot of times, yeah, just the Indigenous, indigenous aspirations just looks like relate relationships and making friends with people and mm-hmm. just getting to know, you know, another perspective on how to manage land or, you know, how to make decisions and, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, we've got this idea, what do you guys reckon, you know, and then they come back to us, they're like, oh, we've got this idea, what do you guys reckon, you know, and working together and just listening, yeah. you know, when it's important to listen and, yeah. Mm. Clyde, Clyde talks a lot about that with in terms of reconciliation. Like reconciliation has become a word that describes Indigenous and non-Indigenous relationships, but Clyde sort of says, well, if, you, if you're just talking about normal relationships, what does reconciliation mean? Reconciliation means like, you know, understanding one another's perspective and, and, and getting to a point where you're actually back in relationships. So the goal of reconciliation is to have relationships and relationships are human um, are human experiences between different people and that's what we're shooting for. And unless you have a, a knowledge and a relationship with an individual, then that everything's just theory and it, it, it's not really what we're aspiring to anyway. It's all about relationships. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that and um, I think it's a good approach for us rather than to, to approach things with sort of high-level MOUs and, you know, documents that outline the way we'll deal with each other. It's it's a better way is to get to know people and, and to include them in our decisions and to take take their advice and, 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 and bring them into our confidence and, and hopefully us into their confidence and, and then find a way together to you know, to realise the goals that we're both shooting for. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really awesome. Thank you guys so much for your time today. Um, there's been a lot of really incredible truth bombs being dropped um, and I've really enjoyed it. So um, thanks heaps, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great to be able to share. It was fun. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Renew Our World podcast. To learn more about the Renew Our World campaign or to hear about some of the work that our partners are doing, make sure you jump on over to our website at renewourworld.net. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss a podcast episode again.